0: 11 FSs, Benjamin Ensel and myself, Sarah Kachansky, have put together a comprehensive report analysing the short, medium and long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on financial services. We outline how banks, investment management firms and insurance companies will need to adjust to meet the demands of a new normal. You can read the report right now for free at info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. And that is COVID-19 with no hyphen. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Kachansky and welcome to episode 65 of InsureTech Insider. As you'll no doubt have guessed, we are still recording remotely, uh, but one upside of that is that we can have guests along from all around the world. Um, do get in contact by sending us an email to podcast11fs.com if you know someone we should get on the show. In today's show, we will be discussing the most interesting news in the InsureTech and insurance sphere from across the globe. I'm joined today by my co-host, Nigel Walsh. How are you doing, Nigel?
1: I'm fine and dandy. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking.
0: Good, good. Um, And joining us, we have three amazing guests. First up, we have returning friend of the show, Sophie Winwood, investor at Anthemis. How are you doing today, Sophie? Yeah, I'm
2: very good. Thank you. Glad to be back again. Um, So can you quickly recap for any new listeners what Anthemis is and what it does? Yeah, absolutely. So Anthemus is the leading early stage investor in fintech and insurtech investments globally. Uh, So we have been investing for over 10 years. We've got a portfolio of over 100 companies now, um, you know, looking specifically within the fintech and insurtech space. Perfect.
0: Um, Great to have you back. Uh, Secondly, we have making his debut, Niels Thornay, CEO of Sprout.ai. How are you doing today, Niels?
3: I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Very happy to be on the show.
0: And where are you?
3: I'm in London, West London at the moment.
0: Ah, okay. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about Sprout.ai?
3: Of course. Um, So Sprout.ai is an InsurTech scale-up founded at Imperial College here in London in 2018. And uh, our sole mission is to enable any insurance carrier to settle their claims in under 24 hours or less with our contextual AI solution. And we currently operate in motor, property and health, and uh, we're so far lucky enough to work with three of the top 10 uh, global carriers.
0: Brilliant. Well, great to have you along. And last, by no means least, we are joined by Lucas Carlson, CEO and co-founder of Hedvig. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Whereabouts are you today?
4: Thank you so much. I'm um, calling in from from our Stockholm office. We've actually just started to allow sort of five people at a time to work from the office if they keep a distance. And I've already been through the virus, so and had some cabin fever, so I was quick to sign up.
0: Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear you've been unwell, but uh, the rest of us can only dream of, of such a scenario where we can perhaps go and be in the same room as other people who aren't our family. So can you quickly tell us what Hedvig is?
4: Uh, I sure can. So um, Hedvig is a Nordic tech company offering uh, contents, homeowners, travel and uh, object insurance. We've been around since 2018. And uh, we are all about making instant quality help available to the masses. We believe people deserve a radically better service from their insurers and uh, that poor incentive structures have basically prevented that from happening historically. So we solved that and we used technology to make it effortless to get help.
0: Brilliant. Well, um, thank you to everyone for joining me and let's get on with the show. So the first story um, is, you know, to, in to surprise to nobody um, about the pandemic, The pandemic is expected to be more expensive than 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. So we took this from the Financial Times, um, but the uh, warnings about uh, insurers facing their biggest ever losses came originally from the Lloyds of London chief. Um, John Neal, has said that the coronavirus pandemic is likely to be the most expensive event in history for the insurance industry, far more than previous or recent major disasters, such as Hurricane Katrina in uh, 2005 and the 9-11 terror attacks. Um, Insurers are expected to pay out on a wide range of policies from a cancellation to management liability. Um, and on top of paying customer claims, insurers are also likely to have to refund some premiums because of the general downturn in business. On top of that, there's the potential for lawsuits. Um, So, insurers say that standard business interruption policies, uh, well, some insurers say that standard business interruption policies exclude pandemics, uh, but customers and lawyers say that there are actually reasons to expect payouts. Um, Mr. Neal urged insurers to deal with the business interruption issue and said, let's get mechanisms in place quickly so that if there is a dispute, it doesn't go on for months, if not longer. Uh, so who who wants to jump in first on this? I'm sure everybody has an opinion. I mean, other than this being, well, it's almost like no Sherlock here on this one. Um, who wants to go first?
2: Yeah, I think I think that um, what's interesting is there are kind of two sides to this that maybe the article isn't um, kind of noticing, which is. On one side, there is going to be a, a lot of payouts in loads of different lines of business. So not only sort of uh, general insurance that's mentioned here, but, you know, life insurance, health insurance um, is going to be hit quite hard. The other side is that the, the you know financial markets have gone into uh, had huge volatility, um, have seen very dramatic decreases and interest rates have just you know plummeted to almost zero. So you're getting hit on both sides, really, if you're an insurer payouts, but then also your kind of underlying assets are are decreasing as well. So um yeah, as you said, at to be expected, but it's it's yeah, it's pretty brutal out
1: there. It's it's really interesting to, interesting to see how the organizations have reacted. And I've done some work around the world around who's done what, looking at how Singapore and and the East responded first and what they did from a government perspective versus Um, individual organisations and I think actually Singapore was really cool with where they said some payment holidays and whatever else. I I think the one thing that is a saving grace in some way for so many is that it's not isolated to a country or to a line of business or to uh, anything. We're all sat in our our homes or one of us is lucky enough to be in an office and generally we we say that because we all miss each other Um, but everyone's been through it so there's a level of consensus in place or a level of uh, Based on in a place that actually people get and understand what's now different, but I think going 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 past that point, you know, some insurers have been called out, as of banks, actually, for paying dividends. Should they pay dividends or not? Um, others have automatically refunded stuff. I think to to your point earlier, um, the California state regulator said or mandated that you had to do it. Uh, I think Europe has been really quite slow in, in some instances, specifically uh, Western Europe in this instance. Um, we're getting there. I I really It's really interesting to see all the BI claims and other claims that are about to pop up. Uh, I think we'll come on to it later as well. But I I, I worry about insurance reputation more broadly. And Sarah, I saw you were quoted by Oscar yesterday in, in Yahoo's piece as well. Um, there's nothing that this hasn't affected. And I think the dear CEO letter that came out saying... Uh, most people won't be covered if you've got basic cover and that's fine we're not going to intervene but if you think you are pay up and pay up quickly
3: uh, well, one thing i wanted to interject is that it was interesting what sophie said that you know a lot of insurers obviously are suffering um, i originally thought that health insurers would suffer greatly from this due to an increase in kind of the recovered health related claims but talking to a few um, global providers and especially in the uk they seem to be have it relatively under control through kind of various mechanisms I've seen a bit more an impact in travel insurance and event insurance. But but from our point of view, obviously, we work more on an operational claims point of view. I've I've seen some really interesting things happen there. And for example, like a lot of carriers were completely unprepared for a distributed workforce, and they had to spend the first six, eight weeks just setting up people with laptops or desktops or VPN credits to work from home in the quarantine period, which is obviously not an easy thing to do. Imagine you're 50,000 employees or something. So... So that's something I find quite interesting. And and the other thing is that um, a lot of carriers, as you probably know, are not cloud-based yet. So they have, still have on the ground massive server infrastructures to maintain. And you know, imagine that that kind of you know, those those server infrastructures fail, which is you know impossible. So so I, I think hopefully this this will also kind of spur them on to, to migrate faster to to cloud and the ability of distributing the workflow. Um, and, and actually, you know, if you use an intelligent automation tool like, like Sprout AI, that could be of massive added value in the process as well. Because <laughs> <Quiet> <laughs> <little plugs> <laughs> <there>. <laughs> <laughs> No, so th- those are my thoughts on that. <laughs> Lucas?
4: Yeah, no, I think uh, the question of whether or not the insurance companies were prepared, I think is interesting because it's really the job of, of insurers to be prepared for, for situations just like this one. And, um and pandemics is uh, is nothing new. It's been a recurring throughout history, so we should have been able to predict and prepare. But uh, what I think sort of may be quite unique about this time is that we now have, I mean, social media in a way that we didn't have before, and cameras in every pocket. And when we're faced with a threat like this, social media is an extremely efficient way to propel that that fear that we all rightfully have for this situation. And uh, And I think that combined with the fact that our economy is so reliant on on credit, is a bad mix. Because most of the dollars we spend is not money, it's uh, it's credit. We're borrowing from the future and uh, it's quite dependent on people being confident about the future. And that makes us very sensitive to this kind of uh, situations, uh, especially when we're fearful and suddenly not that confident, then it stops abruptly.
0: Yes, um, I mean it's 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 a really interesting kind of uh huge maelstrom or a perfect storm of, of different sets of circumstances that have all collided here, you know, you you that have resulted in uh, the everything sort of going wrong at the same time, um, and it only took a pandemic to do it. Um, I think the thing that's going to be interesting for me is that it is quite clear that some insurers will 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 struggle with this. I think um, to Niels's point, I'd, I'd heard the same thing that that health insurers actually aren't doing too badly, you know, um, and all they're going to do is put their premiums up next year, so so it's not going to cause them. Uh, what you makes know, you say that? They said they would.
1: I don't okay I don't recall seeing that. The, the thing I was going to comment on the health piece though was and it's an interesting debate what it's almost like the car insurance refunds that have been happening worldwide. Actually most of the private hospitals that exist have, to, have already been moved to frontline to help out whether it's uh, Booper or the folks in Ireland with 18 different hospitals that' be going to, to, to support the effort. Um, but actually the delay in the ability to give non-critical care, will result in a case by case. And many of the providers have said, we'll analyze or we'll look at things that a case by case. If you if you call for a physio appointment, my, my wife waiting for a physio appointment It's non-critical. They can't do it or, or they might do it remotely, but actually because she's getting a lower level of care than she wanted in the first instance, she may be eligible for a, uh, a refund or a rebate or whatever, it, however it presents itself because they actually now can't deliver their service which i find interesting the other one is so, so, some countries are still collecting cash through branch networks to pay for their monthly premiums and of course cash is now almost gone in, in many in, in many countries so um, many of the folks also have to stop the can- automatic cancellations for non payment if you couldn't pop the local branch to hand over your x amount of euros or pounds or whatever it might be to pay your premium so it's really intriguing how we have all adapted, but mostly got on with stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I was going to say was that um, you know what is going to be interesting here is that uh, some insurers are not going to are not going to make it. Right, there are going to be some that just weren't prepared for this enough. Um, you know, to your two points earlier as well about the the uh, instant operational hit. Oh, the instant increase in operational costs of going, oh my god, we've got to buy 20,000 laptops, we've got to, in, you know, get new VPNs set up, we've got to start paying for new services and products and services that enable us to work remotely, and then we can get up and running, and then we can start dealing with processing claims. That's an extra expense, of course. Um, and I do wonder what the reaction is going to be um, as to whether we let, you know, whether insurers are allowed to fail and on what scale, because, you know, we've seen this before with, with the large banks. Obviously, it's very different financially, um, in a very different set of financial circumstances at the moment. But if we do get the point where large insurers are in serious trouble, do governments let them fail or not?
2: Um, you know, we've seen the bailout banks before. Would they do it for an insurer? I think that it could be a really interesting catalyst for insurtech right which is fintech was born out of the 2008 crisis maybe this is you know the the catalyst we need for insurtech. Hmm.
4: And um I mean we have seen uh, governments bail out uh, insurance companies previously as well with AIG in, in the US for instance but I certainly hope that they they let insurance companies fail because um, the bailing out banks uh, certainly has a long term bad effect on on incentives. And the, the same goes for insurance.
0: Yes, it can come back to bite you. I think we've also discovered that, particularly in the UK. Um, right. Today's next story um, is that car insurance have given back to their customers um, and they're giving to the NHS as well. So this is a story from the UK, but there are insurers all around the world who are who are giving back um Giving rebates and refunds to customers. Um, this particular story is about Admiral, which has given twenty five pounds um, a refund to each customer uh, over the uh, well uh, as a result of coronavirus. We did mention it um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Admiral has become the first major UK motor insurer to offer its customers partial refunds. Um, the total will add up to one hundred and ten million pounds, um, which comes to a 25 pound refund for each car and van covered as of the 20th April customers will receive this refund by the end of May. Um, as there is a smaller risk of accidents and breakdowns during this time, industry estimates suggest insurers could actually save around a £1 billion this year. Um, Admiral has pledged a further £80 million, um, which will be used uh, to reduce prices, basically, and the biggest cuts will benefit renewing customers with above-average premiums, so you're looking at younger drivers, basically, will look be receiving uh, cheaper renewal deals than perhaps they would have done previously, um, and some more of the money will go towards supporting uh, nhs staff uh, through waiving motoring claims excess fees and giving them a free courtesy vehicle if their personal vehicle is stolen or damaged during this period um i think you know we did cover this briefly uh two weeks ago but you know my, my thought then stands by you know i stand by my thought which is 25 pounds is nothing <laughs> um, absolutely nothing off an annual premium um you know, I think the, the, the guest we had on a couple of weeks ago, one of them mentioned that it was his rebate, he's in the US, was less than half of the cost of his takeaway from the night before. So uh, is, it, is, it, is it a benefit? Is, you know, is, it, is it a good move or is it actually insulting um, the amount they're giving back? Um, who wants to go first on that one?
2: Well, um, I spent a bit of time in the Twitter comments section on this oh, story. Oh goodness me, you brave woman! <laughs> um, and I was expecting the same thing, right? I was expecting to go in and be like, everyone be like, "Ah, oh, twenty five pounds! What a ridiculous amount!" And a lot of people are, but a, a few people are defending them and saying, "You know what? It's better than nothing, and actually, it does go in some way towards compensating us." F- you know, for the last, last month or so, and they're looking to do more. Um, so I think there was a mixed response. Um, the other thing that was quite interesting was uh, loads of people were just adding their insurers in the <laughs> comment section and being like, well, this is being done. Like, what are, what, what are you doing? And um, Aviva's response was um, Aviva customers who are driving less are able to review their annual mileage and make changes if they feel it has been significantly reduced customers who pay monthly may have their outstanding premiums reduced so it, it and there's a couple of other ones where they i think direct line and hastings have all been like oh okay uh we'll go back and we'll uh review uh, our policy so um you know 25 months is not enough but if you can get other insurers to do stuff and if you can commit to doing other stuff i don't know i don't think it's that that bad
0: yeah i mean it's interesting um just as a quick note and then and then lucas i know you want to jump in there um but uh, J- james blackham who is the ceo of buy miles um, which is basically uh, uh, coverage on on the basis of usage, so you just p- pay per use. I was calculated that over a two month lockdown, drovers could actually be between thirty five to fifty eight pounds out of pocket for every car they own, which is really interesting because Admiral makes a really big deal out of having like family policies and joint car policies. Um, so you know, actually, if you add the two together, if you've got two cars with them, they'll give you fifty quid, but actually, you could be geo- you should be due geo- one hundred and twenty. So um, interesting, Lucas.
4: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree that £25 is not a lot of money, but I think still as a, um, it's, it's it's good if it, it can inspire others because, uh, I mean, the, the, what they're doing is reallocating money to the areas where people need help currently. The, they took the premium to help people with car accidents. Now people don't have need that type of help, but they certainly need help financially to get through the crisis. So I think... Um, I think it's quite inspirational, and I think that people will uh, remember them for it.
5: Great.
1: I think um, if I just jump in very quickly, so the I, I'm, I'm with uh, Sophie on this one. I think the fact they've done something and are first is really intriguing and should be applauded. I'm I'm, in, I'm pleased to see the Twitter comments weren't all hatred and whatever else. Um, I, I, your question and ignoring whoever the carriers are, the the purpose of, or the point of how fair these things are there's been a mix of people doing either a percentage base back based over a number of months or a physical amount. What they've tried to do, though, if you think about it, it's their, let's assume you've got the largest insurer in the UK, therefore they may have the largest number of healthcare workers and key workers that are still driving to and from places of work, whether it's a school teacher, refuge collector, or NHS worker, whatever it might be rather than going some aren't driving or some are driving more put theirs up and some are driving let's put those down the fact it's a flat fee and it's done something for everyone no matter what i actually think demonstrates a level of again go back to the humanity humanity a bit or um, it's the easiest simplest and fastest way to go something back and i get the fact that you know let's say uh, say if he's spending 800 quid a month a, a month, on, oh, sorry, a month? Love, what you' driving uh, 800 quid a, a year on, on yours versus 400 for mine then 25 is a, is a very different, different number um but I think it's the right move or it's a very very strong move by any organization that does it and sets the bar for everyone else to follow.
0: It's certainly, it's certainly better than nothing in most cases. And I think the, the biggest uh, problem that insurers face right now, and we've already kind of touched on this, is actually reputation. It's because the media, you know, 99.9% of all media coverage related to insurers and COVID-19 is negative. So if they can get, you know, one positive story, two positive stories, then then that will help their reputation. And, and I, I do think perhaps, you know, financial losses are going to be huge, but reputation or losses are going to be bigger here. Um, just, uh, Niels, did you want to say anything before moved on
3: yeah no sarah i agree with you and and nigel as well i think it's a in a way without sounding kind of cynical it's a shrewd marketing move and it you know they dictate the market pace because they come to the market first and they're doing something humane which is amazing and but on the longer term i wonder because the the margins in these commodity insurances like motor insurance are already very very low right so profitability is, is is low as well and and so they can you know and so I think you know it, it's a downward spiral of people trying to you know outprice each other, especially the big brands here in, in, in the UK, for example. So I think it does leave them vulnerable um, in a, you know in a year or in a few years to other incumbents that might want to have a nibble at the market, like I'm thinking consumer brands with with strong brand awareness, like a, like a car brand, Jaguar, IKEA, and you see that actually popping up already, or maybe even. Uh, big tech players like amazon you know (laughs) everyone's scared of amazon i i I know a few carriers in the states that have banned the use of amazon products within the insurance company because of the looming fear that amazon will will move into the insurance space not no kidding you know so i I do think it's amazing to do something but where are we going to end up on the long term because there's such a low profitability already are they going to price themselves into the ground
0: yeah, no, um, I, I think it's uh, 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 yeah, it's it's as you say. It, we talk about this quite a lot on the show, but when you buy, kind of, actually, if you're you're. British um, and you are were raised here and you buy insurance, you just go to a website and buy the cheapest one. It is just how I would say 90% of people buy any kind of insurance. That is just what we do. Um, so, you know, I know that's different in other markets, but but as you say here, you know, an Advan motor is such a big bit of Admiral's business that, um, you know, it, 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 it is interesting to see, uh, you know, what comes out the other side. I,
1: uh, as, I, say, I as you know, I don't comment on, on, on individual brands or anything like that at all, but I think the fact that some organisations whether they're insurance or not the fact they've done something for you uh, whether it's your TV provider giving you extra channels while kids are on lockdown there's a there's a positive sense back to your point about reputation that gives you a warm fuzzy feeling so regardless of the amount or the percentage I think that warm fuzzy feeling piece for any insurer is really critical
0: yeah I think I think we're all agreed on on that the reputation piece Okay, um, taking us over to the States now. Um, uh, this We got this from Bloomberg. Uh, Oscar Health has laid off 5% of staff. So Oscar Health is a, a health insurance startup that's raised over a billion dollars from investors. Um, CEO Mario Schlosser has now... In a LinkedIn message said, the company has had to lay off around 5% of employees. Um, The quote is, all of us, members of Oscar and everyone else, are experiencing profound uncertainty around our health and our economic circumstances. Our choices were a balance between what was needed to meet our company goals of bringing the budget in line with our worst case scenario modelling. Last month, Oscar, which is based in New York, came under fire when it announced a COVID 19 testing center locating tool, uh, which appeared to be the same one announced by Donald Trump. Uh, The situation raised questions over conflict of interest um, and whether Oscar was receiving preferential treatment. Um, For those who don't know, Oscar was co founded by Josh Kushner, whose brother Jared is Trump's son in law and a senior White House advisor. Um, Generally speaking, they are considered to have very, very different. political views the brothers um but you know anything like this happens and and those accusations will come out there it goes back again to what the press will pick up on um oscar's laid off staff will receive severance and health care coverage um and layoffs won't affect customer facing roles um i do not expect that they will by any means be the only insurance or insure tech company that that has laid off staff or furloughed staff if that's an option in the the um the countries they're working in. So to me, 5% doesn't feel like a worrying figure. Again, I think this kind of almost goes back to to media perception and, oh, look, a giant insurtech that was doing really well has had to lay some people off. That's a headline. Um, and perhaps numbers from other companies aren't out there yet. You know, I would be very surprised if the very large insurance haven't, uh, as I said, taken advantage of, of government furloughing programmes or whatever's available to them. Um, but maybe you guys have a different perspective on this.
3: Um, so, well, first of all, I think obviously letting go of any employees is is really hard, right? So the, these people have been part of your team and culture and all working together to kind of, you know, join success and growth. And unfortunately, and with Sprout AI, we haven't um, had to let people go, which is which is already, I'm very grateful for that. But I mean, from kind of the startup perspective, I think this kind of intertwines with the kind of the Silicon Valley culture and value system as well. As, as we all know, some startups raise insane amounts of money and then believe profitability comes later when when you're ramping up to your usage, you know, Lyft and Uber, you know, point in case, but um, it's fairly common practice. So I think if you've hired a shed load of people for predictor, predicted future uh, ramping up purposes, but all you've absorbed so far is onboarding costs and, and they've not been generating growth and revenue for the company, that can really hurt your runway. Like imagine this happens at that time. So I think it's an incredibly kind of fragile balance and, and depends purely on the market performance, which is something no one controls. Right. So so maybe in a sense, and, and it's it's a kind of a little bit of a reality check for that kind of startup slash v, VC ecosystem after this 10 year incredible bull market. And, um, you know, so, so maybe that, you know, we're getting back with our feet on the ground. And obviously, I mean, it's really sad to see so many talented individuals lose that livelihood. So I'd rather it not happen. But um, yeah, that's something some of my thoughts.
0: Yes, no, no, that, that makes sense. I think it's important to point out as well here that the the employees will receive severance and some health care coverage, I think, because in the US, my understanding is it's actually quite unusual. Um, so that does show that, you know, as you say, going back to that humanity side and that empathy side, Oscar is trying to do the best it can here. Um, Sophie, perhaps you want to speak um, on the subject. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think um, you know while while we look at early stage investments, and this is obviously a, a much later stage investments. I think some of the principles that we're sort of talking to our portfolio companies about, and also companies that we're speaking to, is that when we come out of this, um, VCs won't just look at. Um, your revenues your attraction your team they will look at how you dealt with this situation Um, so you know how quickly did you remodel how you know I think letting people go is should be it's obviously really sad but it it is a positive thing because it means they've taken a proactive um, approach to you know maintaining the business to support the 95% other employees. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely something that we are really starting to focus on when we're looking at investments, which is like, how have you dealt with the situation? And how have you, you shored up your balance sheet uh, to enable you to to kind of carry on in the future?
0: That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. But you know, how you behave now might affect you know your survival in six months' time when you do need the funding. Um, Nigel, did you have something you wanted to add?
1: I think it's just to, to to jump into safety. The, the, I think the VC community have done quite well. I think Sequoia came out very early on with a dear founders and CEO letter. Um, I think most of your peers have done the same uh, safety, where they they basically said, "Build your runway." I, I, I'm working with a bunch of startups like right now. That, have, that fall into two categories. Category one is they've raised money and they're relatively comfortable but are still making those tough decisions to go, how do you make sure our runway is here for as long as possible? And those that were pre-fundraising or in the middle of doing their next round, and it's a lot harder because they've got to work out what they do and where they spend their energy and effort. So I think it's a really tough time. Um, but, but as you said, Sarah, those, those decisions you make now will, will have a significant point going forward. The, the 5% is is awful, but equally, if you look at uh, Metromile, I think last week or week before, announced either departing or furloughing a third of their staff. So um, it's back to the, let's make sure we have long-term sustainability over uh, short-term here.
0: Yeah. Lucas, did you, did you have a final point before we move on?
4: Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean... Um... I think different lines of insurance are, are, are hit very differently, and uh, and I think it, it's a benefit for the companies that are multi-line at the moment, and maybe lose on the on on one end of the spectrum, but make it up on on things like motor insurance not being used as much as as previously. So I think some of the single-line carriers that have a very direct and unpredictable impact will will definitely struggle. But uh, but but it's yeah it's, it strikes people very differently. For for us, we've been fortunate to have uh, some of the uh, to sort of break our every growth record during these times, as as people uh, sort of have a higher demand for for basic safety. So um, so it's very yeah it's very different and uh, and hard to predict.
0: Yeah, it's it's. I don't think anybody's going to deny, deny that it's tough out there right now. Just before we continue, are you switching up your morning routine now we're all social distancing? Well, so are we. In fact, we've started two daily breakfast shows to help you kick off your day on both sides of the Atlantic. On the FinTech Insider Breakfast Show, we chat about the latest news with a series of industry guests all dialing in remotely. Um, It goes live on LinkedIn every morning at 8.30 a.m. BST. Just follow David Breer on LinkedIn. And if you're US-based and 8.30 BST is a little early, don't worry, we haven't forgotten you. We also have a US option. Fintech Insider Breakfast Show US, which is hosted by Sam Moore, goes live at 10.30 ET. So grab a coffee and tune in. For the US show, just follow 11FS on LinkedIn to get the daily notification. And for both shows, don't forget to add your comments in the thread. We love hearing where you're tuning in from, and we'll try and answer as many questions as possible on each show. All right, back to the news. So, the next story um, we took from FT Alphaville, but again, has uh, has cropped up everywhere. And it's Elon Musk, the insurer. So, Bear with me on this one. It's got a it's a little it's a little bit of a tale. I feel like I'm going to be telling a bedtime story here, but let's just get the the the, the details and the context out of the way and then we can jump into what it might mean. So, Tesla has decided not to renew its directors and officers liability insurance policy for 2019-2020 due to the high premiums quoted by insurance companies. Instead, Elon Musk agreed with Tesla to personally provide coverage equivalent to such a policy for a one-year period, and the other members of the board are third-party beneficiaries of that, okay? Now we all know the U.S. is particularly litigious. So if the company were to receive a lawsuit against the board or its directors, and that lawsuit were successful, it makes sense that an agreement is made so that the targets of the accusations don't have to pay out of their own pockets. So that would be the people on the board. It's less common for the company's largest shareholder and, in fact, chief executive to be underwriting that insurance. Uh, one way of looking at this, according to Alphaville, is that it shows both Musk's confidence in the company and willingness to protect his colleagues. On top of the $14.5 billion worth of stock Musk pledged as collateral to secure personal loans, Musk is now personally on the receiving end for any successful lawsuits against the company's directors. Um, A little bit of context about perhaps why the premiums suddenly went up so much. Um, In January, Tesla's board faced a lawsuit uh, of around $60 million relating to the propriety of the company's $2.6 billion takeover of solar financing company Solar City back in 2016. So there is speculation that that is what caused the premiums to rise, which is what triggered Musk's decision to do this. So I hope everybody's with me. <laughs> um, basically, Musk is underwriting insurance for his own company using his own stock, um, you know, TLDR version. Thoughts on this? Um, now you've got your heads around it.
1: it. It's not it. It's not uncommon. I actually uh, mentioned this the other day as well. It's not uncommon for uns- insurers to self-insure. The example I used was someone like NASA that don't buy commercial insurance, although it's available for space travel and whatever else it might be that exists that, that's out there. So, so lots of organisations self-insure. What's different, of course, in this case is you have the a uh, CEO and founder, Mr. Musk himself, doing it himself for for this group. So there's definitely something that's different. But if it's if we're just if we're just interested in the fact that the company is self insured, no new. Um, but the fact that it's been underwritten by an individual is very intriguing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point. I mean, uh, you know, under you know, self-underwriting is is not it's not that unusual. We've talked about it before, particularly with unusual organisations and unusual business models. And in fact, you know, we talked about it. Um, uh, you know, last year on our uh, catastrophe insurance show, where we talked about the fact that a lot of organizations, particularly when it comes to cyber insurance, they can't find a policy that works for them. So they just put a huge chunk of money to one side and assume that will cover them. Um, Sophie, did you have any thoughts on, on Elon Musk? I mean, sorry, yeah. related to this story, we all have <laughs> yeah. thoughts on Elon Musk. Exactly,
2: we could we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, so yeah, I thought, I thought it's just, it's so bizarre that he's almost like protecting his board of directors from potentially think that he will do because I think a lot of the stuff is is been generated by him and um my colleague Matt Matt Jones who's also been on the show um has this theory I was going to seal it for my own but I think I'll, I'll give it to him which is that Elon Musk is actually so clever that he's been doing all this stupid stuff the last couple of years driving up the DNO premiums and then he was like you know it's been so high I'll I'll just say that I'll get the premiums. And now It'll he's going to be like down too long. Yeah, he's going to be like really good, well behaved and just collect all these premiums. Genius, guys, genius. <laughs> yeah, I, but it, it's, one, it's one theory,
0: definitely. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's less weird or mad than the other ones. <laughs> no,
0: no. I mean, Musk, as we said, is not known for his, um, I don't know what I was going to say, conventional decisions on many things. Uh, Lucas, Niels, did you have any thoughts on this one?
3: Um, I, <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard to comment on this, but, but I, I think I'm as a personal fan and I followed him for some time. And I mean, the guy, he knows how to build companies and he's absolutely relentless. He's like, uh, um, I don't know if you followed the Michael Jordan, uh, documentary on Netflix, but it reminds me a bit of like the Michael Jordan of tech, right? So, I mean, he's great. He's kind of cracked space rockets and, and stuff like that. So I, I think he would be able to, I mean, considering trust, I think I would trust him to, to take care of this as well. Um. Yeah, although maybe once he's found out about the complexity of insurance, he might want to go back to building rockets instead. (laughs) Well, he might solve it, right? He might just go, I can
1: fix that better than
3: anyone else. I don't think so.
1: (laughs) Oh, I think he could.
0: I don't know. I think we should be wary of putting uh, putting people like Musk on too high a pedestal. Um, Lucas, did you have any final comments before we move on?
4: Um, I I agree with Niels. I think uh, the extent. To so that, with the extent that he will go to to uh, protect uh, protect the company is uh, is uh, yeah I mean he did it before with uh, with saving the company through uh, through a financial situation putting up his his private capital it gives me, gives me some sense of security as a teeny tiny shareholder of the of the company that he's just that certain
2: yeah
0: I mean it does it does it does show his own confidence in his company but i don't think we were ever any in any doubt about that um the one thing i do i do wonder is um does it make him a target does this mean people are more likely to go after him because he's personally liable i don't know he's he's a you know very divisive character and i do wonder if maybe he just put an even bigger target on his back but we'll have to wait and I see oh, I think he's really
1: smart really smart
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, back,
4: back to Sophie's point about mm-hmm. uh, maybe he has a he has a exactly. grand thought around. In- this.
2: Long game, long game, guys. Yeah,
3: exactly. And I think you can brilliant. afford a lot it's of expensive lawyers, so I think he will be fine as well.
0: <laughs> there's smart and there's intelligent, so we'll wait and see. Um, right, next story. Small businesses turn to lawsuits as insurers fail to pay out. So we got this from Insurance Business Bag. Um, this is just one of many, many stories about this, but this one in particular talks about six insurers facing federal class action lawsuits for denying business interruption claims. So a federal class action lawsuit has been filed against insurers in the US for denying policy claims the plaintiffs had made to protect against business interruptions. um, And that's obviously is specifically related to COVID-19. The six insurance companies have been named as defendants, and they include Aspen American Insurance, Auto Owners Insurance, Lloyds of London, Society Insurance, Oregon Mutual Insurance, and Topa Insurance Company. Wow, the Americans need to be more creative with their names. Um, Plaintiffs for the lawsuit include restaurants, pizzerias, bridal retailer, Bakery and a dental practice, all in the US, sort of businesses you might expect. Um, The lawsuits claim that each business purchased special property insurance coverage to protect against business interruptions. Uh, These policies included business income coverage. So the law firm uh, noted that all of these coverages either included or did not expressly exclude losses caused by viral infections. Um, This is, as I said, just one example of this. You know, here in the UK, we've seen um, a similar lawsuit uh, launched against Hiscox. very, very similar sort of set of circumstances, um, which is quite unusual, actually. We're not known for our class action lawsuits on this side of the pond. Uh, so it kind of suggests um, just, just how strong the feeling is around this. Um, the final quote here is that insurers will deny almost every claim, even the most legitimate ones, because that's just how they operate. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, we go all the way back to reputation. Um, who wants to jump in first on this one? Uh, yes, Nils, go for it.
3: So, um, well, again, I'm not really an expert, but I, ha- I did have a few kind of observations reading through the questions. So, so I think one, SMEs are obviously suffering in a major way, right? It's, it's horrible what's happening to retail. So I can I can understand the agony. Um, What's happening, and and second, uh, I mean, it depends on how you, as a government or as a nation, kind of address these uh, these these kind of problems right now. Um, as we know in the UK, you've got the rule on the furlough, eighty percent, and my brother has a restaurant in Belgium, and he they got a fee because they had to close down. So, so I think that's the second thing, how you deal with it as a country, and then as a third, as you mentioned before, kind of the US is a litigious country, and then and then number four. Um, and I'll stop there. Is um, that it's reputation, right? So maybe sometimes, unfortunately, insurers have historically had a reputation or an image of taking but not giving back. So so maybe in this case, for me, I was like, you know, the lack of kind of you know well, the government interference, and then insurance companies are maybe maybe our insurance is an easy scapegoat in what is defined as a litigious uh, society. So so kind of facilitated by the misperception about insurers makes them an easy scapegoat and obviously might, the media might pick up on that. So it's it's a bit unfortunate in a way. Does that make sense?
0: <laughs> uh, yes, no, no, it absolutely does. I think insurers' scapegoats is, um, is is not an unreasonable statement at this point. Nigel, you're waving at me.
1: Uh, I, I'm twiddling my pen for those who won't see this. The um, I think, Niels, you summed it up really well, your first comment, which was I'm not an expert in this. And I would argue that there are very few experts in this that sit outside of insurance or legal organisations. And if you go through the flow and bring it all the way back to Sarah's opening comment, and again, as I said, I won't comment on individual cases or or whatever else you expect, but not as an expert then brings you to what wording or what policy I've signed up to. If it goes into the legal cases or the sequence of the terms that, that have been put through... None of us, and, and very few people, read their wording, which means they were sold it potentially in some cases in the corporate world by a broker, which then says, "Was I missold it?" And back to that horrible word, um, or was I uh, misrepresented, which then leads into a different type of claim. If it's if the policy wording holds true, does that mean that the way in which I acquired that, the distribution channel, whether it was a broker or direct, uh, has a DNO claim next to them? which goes back to a topic Sarah and I've talked about with many guests over the years, which is, is your wording in plain English and understandable or no? And over the last month, I spent too much time reviewing uh, contract wording and legal stuff, either for friends or as part of work that I'm doing to help work these things out. And it goes back to the, actually if it goes back to the sequence of events, you do require the legal or wordings expert to tell you both what was meant by it and what the intent of it was. And you'll have seen in the news what one person was saying, never mind what it says, the spirit of it should exist. And spirit of it isn't necessarily one of the things that um, shareholders will abide to when they're trying to get the right dividend or return on their investments, which links back to our pensions, which goes back to the first point about paying something back rather than nothing. So it's, it's a... It's a really nice one to finish on because it's all linked together and you see how this vicious circle goes all the way around from the intent, the desire. And ultimately, if it's a pandemic that's affected everyone, is it a government issue where they'll step in and you either pick up the broken banks, financial institutions, the supermarkets, or you pick it up in the welfare state system? So it's a a very short answer, but hopefully structured in a way that says no matter where you go, something's going to get picked up. And it has, I think, was it John Neal or someone else came out and said, if these things hold true, it has the ability to bankrupt an industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I think the most important point here actually goes back to, I mean, I, I do agree, you know, 100%, I think insurers should be more responsible with their policy wording. I think, you know, some of, the, some of the blame perhaps must lie at the foot of brokers. But is that because the way brokers are incentivized? If you look at, you know, what's happened with um, financial advisors, particularly in the US, and the way they're incentivized caused an awful lot of problems there. But I think the biggest problem comes back to the fact that an awful lot of people just don't understand insurance, what it is, how it works. Um, and, you know, we need to make insurance, it's easier to understand. We can't expect everybody to go out and understand how uh, you know a four hundred year old industry works, an industry that has changed very little, you know, since the sixteen hundreds, because because they have other things in their lives. I think the insurance industry itself has to work harder at making it easier to, to understand. And then you know, if you are asked to pay more because you do need more coverage, perhaps you're more willing to accept it.
1: I was just going to say, Sarah, it's the new, it, Yeah, it's the nuances. If you recall back to the terrorism attacks that happened in London and in Borough Market or London Bridge, the terrorism policies covered for physical damage. They didn't cover for non-physical damage, but you still couldn't get access to the properties because there was an action to shut down the area. So again, it's the nuances of how they're interpreted. And to Niels's point, it requires an expert to understand those. And I guess the question is, should it?
0: Yeah, interesting. Before we close out, Lucas, did you want to say something? And then Sophie, I'll come to you.
4: Um, yeah, I think. I mean, um, insur I mean, this is a, an example of insur- when insurance companies are 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 sort of using the the power that they have to interpret the very complex contract in hindsight to basically and fail to honor their promises uh, in in hindsight. And I think that's one of the biggest problems we have in the industry and and why the industry has such a low reputation and by the way the it's also exactly the reason why why i chose to enter into this industry because i sort of see this as an important problem to fix
0: brilliant and sophie any final words
2: yeah i guess um Kind of two things. I think there there is a difference between um, the insurers that were were sourced kind of SARS and were scared of it, and have specifically put in um, things related um, to pandemics, and then others where the where the wording is vague or even there is wording in there, and they're just saying we're not paying out. Um, and I think I just this is just a, will be an interesting in story to follow because you know it's if one of these cases wins, then that means that every other uh, business in that situation will be able to claim. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's you know, it's, again, it comes back to that, like, is this the the change that insurers needed to, to really just think about this? So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it all unfolds.
0: Yeah, I think we have to end on that positive note and just say we hope that the end result of this is that the insurance industry is inspired to sort itself out. Just before we leave you, I spoke to Asaf Lifshitz over at Sayata Labs to find out more about the company, the current state of cybercrime, and how insurers and their clients can protect themselves against it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider Interviews. I'm Sarah Kachansky and it is my pleasure to be joined by Asaf Lifshitz, CEO and co-founder of Syata Labs. Asaf, thank you very much for coming on the show. How are you today?
5: I'm um, great, considering the odd and challenging circumstances. there. thank you.
0: You're well in and of yourself. Let's let's go with the easy easy
5: question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, yeah, yeah. No, that definitely. I'm well. I think fortunate to also be working in a type of job that allows for working from home. I'd say. So, yeah.
0: Absolutely. I, th- I think we're all quite aware of how lucky we are at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So to start off, can you just give us a quick overview um, of what Sayata Labs actually does?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So we at Sayata, we help insurance carriers and uh, insurance brokers grow their cyber book in a profitable way.
0: Very succinct. I like it. Why cyber?
5: Yeah. So with the reason I guess we first went into cyber insurance is really from the cyber security angle. Israel, for the listeners who do not know, uh, is a cybersecurity powerhouse. So it's, uh, especially from a venture perspective, I think it punches way above its weight, call it. I think it's, um, The last figures I've seen is 0.5% of GDP is Israel's share of the economy, but 16 or 15% of venture dollars go to Israeli startups. So many of my friends are founders of cybersecurity companies. The, the founders of Sayada as well uh, have a solid background in, in cybersecurity. So that's where we started, really. And I'd say the market of cybersecurity is very different than that of insurance, and we like the complementary approach of insurance to security because we think that it does a lot to solve some of the issues that cybersecurity has. So in cybersecurity, the decision-making processes I'd say are problematic sometimes. So you, as a even as a buyer, if you want to buy uh, some system that will help you prevent attack of type X. Well, you don't really know if attack of type X is likely to happen. If it happens, how significant is it going to be? If you install some vendor's product, how likely are they to reduce it uh, and by how much? And so decision-making gets a little bit murky. And insurance is one of those things that your result, it's not guaranteed, but it's much more guaranteed that you know what you're going to get. Uh, It's written in a contract. And if, if, if you understand it correctly, then you know what you're going to get. And it also it solves a lot of the issues with cybersecurity, at least in, at some point it will. Maybe the two are not as tightly linked together, but but over time, I think it, the insurance market will drastically improve decision-making from a cybersecurity, so from a risk mitigation perspective.
0: So the, the, the idea being that it's, um, it's easier to sort of insure yourself against some kind of cybersecurity breach or attack than it is to try and prevent all those things happening?
5: I'd say that usually your your optimal mix of investment so there's overall this notion of you have risk and then you have two levers you can pull you can reduce the risk you can transfer that risk to someone else the mix of investment in the two uh, is very much on a case by case basis and for some organizations they might you know might be 90 10 for some organizations the right mix might be 10 90 um Regardless of what that mix is, the presence of insurance or the option for insurance we think is, is unlocks just tremendous value. So number one, because you're always going to be left with some residual level of risk. Number two is because, and, and so you, you have to transfer it to someone or it's, it can be good practice to transfer it to someone. And number two, because of the existence of the insurance industry, right, all of a sudden they are at the very least incentivized to point you in the right direction of, hey, what is a big problem for you to solve? Like, what is an attack vector, right, that you should be spending more on resolving? So as, you can already start to see the link between the two in the questions that insurers ask you when they want to uh, extend coverage. So some insurers, if, they, if you want to get higher limits or, or just enhance coverage for something, they'll double-click a little bit on your security practices, and they might ask, uh, do you have two-factor authentication? That is because insurers believe um, that that is a significant, or the lack of two-factor authentication creates a significant vulnerability. So you see the two interplaying, and we think that's a very powerful uh, dynamic, because before that, if you're a decision maker in an organization trying to secure it, you don't necessarily know what's important. And we think that a good proxy for what's important is, well, what do the insurers look at? Because they see where they really lose money on. and, and, And... and so we think it's a, they have a pretty informed view. We think, we think that's a, it's a pretty powerful dynamic.
2: So you
0: mean that you would, uh, you would use the data that the insurance companies have gathered through looking at all the things that have happened to their customers that have made claims, and then obviously the insurer responds or reacts on that data by saying, well, have you done X, Y, and Z because we've seen those to be um, effective? Yeah, no, that's
5: already happening. Uh, I, not necessarily to the extent that we think it will happen over time, but already you see in the questions that insurers ask, uh, at the time of binding, And a lot of times, they some of them have started discussing or sort of notifying customers as during the lifetime of the policy, hey, we think you should look into X. And, you know, if I had to ask advice of someone, I think the insurance company is, uh, is a pretty good advisor to, or can sometimes be a, a good advisor, or at least have an interesting angle on how I, as a decision maker at the organization, right? Again, we came into this from the cybersecurity Side of things so as a decision maker. Hey, yeah, I want to hear the insurance company's opinion.
0: That's fascinating to hear somebody speak so so positively about uh, insurers. You, you know, so often <laughs> you hear from companies that work with them that are uh, oh, they're they're too slow and they're too old and they never do anything useful. So I'm um, I, I, I'm I'm intrigued to hear another perspective.
5: I'll, yeah, maybe if I, if I could say like an interesting analogy. If you design like a, a property, an office, right? You you sort of don't want to bother yourself with the question of how far apart should my sprinklers be? And so you delegate really that decision almost right to the insurance company because, well, they know what, what the distance and what are, at least conceptually, they know what are good vendors for sprinkler systems. And like, are sprinkler systems even important? And there's a reason. There's a reason that they have, over time, learned what is important to maintain and what is less important to maintain when protecting yourself from a fire risk. So cyber is Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's it's perfect, but I think that is the direction it's going in.
0: And so can you give us a quick overview of, of what cyber insurance is? What does it generally cover? Obviously, there are lots of different policies and there are a lot, you know, each insurer will underwrite it differently. But effectively, when you buy cyber insurance, what risks are you protecting yourself against?
5: Yeah, that's a very good question and one that a lot of a lot of uh, people might be asking themselves. So I'll say there's, As you said, there's like really varying answers to this and definitely the answers even change over time. It used to be much more about and written in the context of privacy breaches. So I'm a retailer, for example, and I hold many customer records and God forbid if I get hacked, I will be on the hook. Well, I I will breach the trust of my customers and will also financially be on the hook on notifying them, etc. There's been significant Evolutions to that. Now, that's what would be called almost third-party losses, maybe, but been significant enhancements to that. So to give a few examples, ransomware, that's definitely a relatively easy one to explain. So for the people listening who don't know what ransomware is, that is malicious software, malware that infects your, a lot of times, your systems, encrypts your data many times, uh, and then extorts you for ransom if you want to release your data. So if you want your data back, you got to pay us. That again is I think a fascinating case of evolution of what what losses are like and resulting coverage that arises from that. So number one, it used to be a Bitcoin and a Bitcoin used to be $300 to get your data back. And so it really wasn't that material of an exposure. Now the ransom notes are in the six digits, sometimes seven digits, sometimes even more. So it's already becoming something Pretty substantial for a business to have to pay out. Secondly, while your data is encrypted, you can't work, <laughs> and so you have what's called business <laughs> interruption. Uh, so I, you know, if we at Sayada lose access to our IT. That's that's a that's a big problem. <laughs> we we need it. We need it to work. Uh, and so until you have paid the ransom or were was able to reconstruct your data some other way, you're probably going to be incurring some business interruption. Losses. So that's the ransomware side of the coverage, call it or or types of coverage. Another example would be invoice manipulation. Some insurers cover that. If someone hijacks my account, my email account, and then sends invoices to my clients with a different banking information, um, you know that that could be an example. Or takes over my account and sends a note to uh, to someone from finance, hey, please wire the money asap. By the way, I'm going on a plane, so won't be able to, you know, won't be there to confirm. Ah, uh, the transaction uh, if they you know, and this is pressing urgent asAP, please take care of this. Someone in finance might might be tempted to to wire the money when when they shouldn't have. So that's so, some insurers cover that as well.
0: Wow, I hadn't even considered the idea of invoice manipulation. I mean, I, you know anything I can think of fraudsters will have thought of you know a million a million more things. i'm I'm fully aware of that. So given, you know, that what you've just described and, and most of those those types of attack or fraud, or whatever you want to call them, are rising, and I don't think anybody would argue with that, What what's the state of cyber insurance out there? So are there many people offering it? I mean, you were quite complimentary about insurers on the cyberspace having some data and, and you know, acting on it. Is that a lot of people doing that or is it still quite a, a nascent space?
5: Yeah, so I think it, it is said that there's uh, 100 markets in the United States offering cyber insurance. I think more and more insurers are getting comfortable with with selling it so yeah it's a big question what is the what is the state of cyber insurance i guess there's yeah there, so there's from the capacity provider side i'd say that there's maturing of the industry so more and more entrants into the market some are insured techs and some are just more traditional insurance companies that are growing their books and we're seeing a shift from the buyer side and and the distribution side as well that brokers are getting much more comfortable selling it and the buyers are getting much more educated on the risk. And so, yeah, I think maybe that, that, that's maybe an interesting topic to cover how the, or at the very least, the, the brokers, the distribution people are getting substantial experience and have, have had clients that have had claims. And so they're getting comfortable articulating the coverage and articulating the exposure to their clients. That sort of macro trend. And also macro trend is that the buyers themselves are increasingly either obligated to buy it because they're going to engage That's mostly truer, I'd say, for the smaller customers that they're, you know, it might not be a a big exposure on their mind, but their customers have the exposure on their mind. And so they're required by some contract to have cyber insurance in place, or that they have had a breach, one of their peers has had a breach. There's just like, Increased awareness, I'd say, on the buyer side as well.
0: So it's it's the awareness is ramping up across the board, and 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 the industry is is responding to that as they as the insurance industry usually does when it sniffs out a way to make some more revenue.
5: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think people have been waiting for for a while. It's it was many insurers, I think, knew that. Yeah, this is a thing, and people were sort of waiting for the demand to increase. It was, I mean, to us personally, when when we started building Sayada, You know, we had to gain the SMB segment in in the market was not really. We're just maybe starting to buy cyber insurance, and there was uh, mixed signals. Like a lot of people thought, well, why would an SMB even bother buying cyber insurance? And um, uh, but a lot of other people and ourselves included had this conviction that yeah, it's a matter of time before you know they realize either they themselves get hacked or. It's in the broker's incentive to sell it. It just makes so much sense, and everyone's going to invest in educating their their customers, and ultimately, the demand will come. and, and we're definitely seeing that in the past couple of years.
0: Yeah, you absolutely. Know, that's a really interesting point about um, SMBs. Actually, we've we've done a couple of uh, of shows around insurance for SMBs and how generally they're 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 underprovided for, and they're either overcovered or undercovered, and and a lot of what's out there is just isn't fit for purpose. But um, I think it's becoming increasingly obvious i mean perhaps not right now <laughs> but but um perhaps uh-huh. it's becoming increasingly obvious that one of the the biggest risks to a very small company is 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 their IT going down? Is their ability, as you say, you know, business interruption? I'm sure many businesses have been interrupted recently for other reasons. Um, but when we get back on our feet, I think it, yeah. is, it is that kind of, that awareness is growing and thinking, well, actually, it is worth it. Um, and it's also reassuring to hear you say that brokers are starting to, to to push it to people, to suggest it to people. You know, this is something you really should have. I'll say
5: even more than that, by the way. I think from the brokers, we've heard some that they feel that if they don't explain this to their customers, they could be liable for e and So their customer, you know, Errors and emissions, uh, and meaning that they're concerned that their clients might take action if they get hit and learn that they could have been offered cyber insurance and the brokers didn't suggest that they buy cyber insurance or suggest that they buy cyber insurance in the appropriate coverage call it wow uh so yeah definitely definitely a push from brokers and i think i think yeah i think smb specifically it's a very broad term but i think it tends to have slightly different dynamics for sure
0: yeah no absolutely um okay so we've kind of covered where we are at the moment but what do you think is next for for this for this space
5: yeah, you know it's 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 fascinating. There's always I, I'm going to say because you're dealing it's a it's an adversarial market from an attacker's perspective. So attackers are constantly innovating, and the defenders are constantly innovating, and so so there's this cat and mouse game, and which by its very nature introduces a dynamic environment, right? It's not like fire insurance, where to the extent that you continue building the same way, the risk is going to stay the same way. Cyber insurance is almost the opposite end of that, right? There's defenders and attackers, and, and they keep trying to one-up each other. And so that introduces a dynamic that means that attack vectors are go, going to evolve. So ransomware, that wasn't a thing maybe five years ago, and now all of a sudden it is. And the ability to automate attacks, right? that's another thing that's driving maybe a new type of exposure. So uh, by, by the way, bad news for a lot of SMBs, because when you attack an SMB, The upside is not necessarily as big. And so you as an attacker think of it from an ROI perspective. But if you're able to lower the investment required to generate an attack on an SMB, you can justify attacks on on SMBs, even if the payout is lower. So the more automation happens, the more SMBs get exposed. And that's just going to create a, a, who knows what the range of attacks that might be coming up, what those might be and how they will translate into losses. And those losses, whatever they are, are probably going to inform coverage choices that are out there. And they're definitely going to have to inform some of the underwriting decisions that are made as well. And so the the puck keeps moving. It's on the insurance industry to stay ahead of the curve, both on what it is that you cover, and, and I guess, how, how do you price it or underwrite it as well?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess it goes back to that point that, you know, whatever you and I can think of, or perhaps perhaps whatever I can think of, you know, the, the, the attackers are going to think of a million other things and, and a hell of a lot faster. Um, do you think that the insurance industry is well enough equipped to respond with the speed and agility that you've just suggested?
5: Uh, it's a great question. I'd say that the from a pricing perspective, there's I think the the two big problems that it, that that it creates that I that I mentioned is adapting the coverage and adapting the the underwriting. The coverage one, you know, TBD depends on how frequently the exposure changes. If it starts evolving so fast that a policy of a of, of twelve for twelve months doesn't make sense because by the time I buy it, the all my exposure will have been completely different. Maybe that'll happen. That hasn't historically happened changes haven't been that dramatic that fast. So my personal view is that the industry will be okay managing that. From a pricing perspective, I actually think that it's it's a question of can you price better than than other insurers, right? It's, it's, it's really a question. There's no right or wrong answer. You can have a very, very naive pricing model, and that will work as long as your competitors <laughs> use the same model. But the moment someone else does it in a little bit more sophisticated way, then you start losing money. And so I don't think that the, I think that the industry as a whole will do fine. It's more a question of which players will do better than others.
0: Cool. Okay. Well, as I said, lovely to hear somebody so optimistic. Thank you so much for joining us, Azalf. Where can people find out more about you and and the things you're working on?
5: Yeah. So uh, they can uh, add me on LinkedIn if they're interested to start a conversation. Uh, You can go to sciatalabs.com. We have a contact us page. Those would be good places to start.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you very much, Asaf. That wraps up the news for this time. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a website, a Twitter handle, LinkedIn you'd like to share with us, Sophie?
2: Yeah, so my Twitter handle is at Sophie winwood, um, And if you want to find out more about Anthemus, uh, you can visit Anthemus.com. Or if you're a startup looking for funding, uh, we are still open for business. So you can drop me an email at sophieanthemus.com.
0: Great. Niels, how about you?
3: So our website is easy. It's sprout.ai. And if you want to follow our progress and story, you can find us on sprout.ai uh, on LinkedIn as well.
4: Perfect. Lucas. Well, uh, I welcome you all to follow Hedvig on Instagram. The handle is
1: at uh, Hedvig.
0: Perfect. Short and sweet. I like it. Nigel, where are you these days?
1: I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. You'll find me at Nigel Walsh.
0: Perfect. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. You can also find um, the report I mentioned earlier and a lot of other content we've produced, particularly on insurance, at info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19 without the hyphen. Uh, Thank you so much to all of my guests today, to Sophie, Lucas, Niels, Asaf and Nigel. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instec Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.